morning again. If you want to open uh, your Bibles up to the 115th Psalm this morning, that is where we'll be studying together. We are thinking about identity, continuing uh, to examine kind of the, the connection of, of two places of identity. One, our identity as human beings, and also the identity of the God who made us. And throughout, we've been saying that these two things are really bound up together. We can't separate out our identity from the identity of, of God himself. We need to know him to know ourselves truly, deeply. But uh, similar to the exercise Pete has just uh, offered us uh, to consider, there's, there's brokenness in that identity, and there's distortion. This morning I want to think about how the image we have of who God is has been broken and distorted. One of the, the most popular reality television shows on Netflix the last uh, two or three years is a baking show. I know these are popular uh, across different channels and platforms. But the, the Netflix uh, show tempts would-be or amateur bakers to try their hand at recreating a culinary masterpiece. So they, they put out something that looks really good, really challenging to make, and then they ask these uh, participants or contestants to remake it. And the name of the show is Nailed It, as in, you know, I nailed that, I, I, I did that, I, I did even maybe improved upon that challenge. However, what's made the show popular, what sets it apart, is not the baking excellence of its participants, uh, but instead it, it finds humor in the tragic results its contestants managed to produce. So let me give you a few examples. One of the, the episodes asks the participants to make this birthday cake that looks like a unicorn, but their results look more like, <laughs> more like kind of a, a flop, right, an exploded unicorn. There's a, another episode where they're asked to make a dinosaur birthday cake, and this sort of, you know, I don't know, amorphous blob of a monster comes out. My personal favorite, though, is the week they ask them to make wedding cakes. And you can see the, the model on the left, and you could imagine being a bride or a groom coming to your reception and seeing the result on the right. The general premise of the show is that some things are better left alone, right? Some things we would, we would be better off not improving upon. Wisdom is in knowing what we are called to be creative with, what we're, we're called to bring flourishing to, and in our dominion to, and what to leave well enough alone. Right? Wisdom is knowing the difference between these two things. Last month we said that part of our identity as image bearers is this idea that God has called us to be creative, to bring our hand to many parts of creation, and, and to build upon it, and to develop it. But scripture is also clear that there's one domain, one aspect of of our world that we're not to be innovators of. And that is in our understanding of God himself, of who God is. 
In fact, the, the scriptures are really clear, at least in the Old Testament, that, that we're not to make images of God. We're not to paint pictures of him. We're certainly not asked to bake cakes that look like him. <laughs> you can imagine what that would look like. The scripture is clear that when it comes to God's identity, only God can reveal that to us. Right? Only God can image God. So we are called to be cautious. We're called to resist our impulses to, to shape and to make ident God's identity more like our own. This morning, as we look at Psalm 115, I want us to be thinking reflectively about the image of God we have, the image of the God we worship, and to humbly ask, what about that image could potentially be distorted? Where have we made improvements that might not actually be improvements? Let me pray for us as we bring that question to the Word of God. Lord Jesus, I pray that through the power of your revelation, you would expose two things. You would expose the glory of who you are and your name, and you would also expose the temptations of our heart to worship things that are less than, than God. Lord, would your, would your word have that piercing and dividing and revealing power today? May the words that I preach, may the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. May they reflect what is true, who you truly are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to read Psalm 115. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11 together this morning. Let me read this for us. It says, Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory, because of your love and faithfulness. Why do the nations say, Where is their God? Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. But their idols are silver and gold, made by human hands. They have mouths, but cannot speak. Eyes, but cannot see. They have ears, but cannot hear. And noses, but cannot smell. They have hands, but cannot feel. And feet, but cannot walk. Nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. All you Israelites, then, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. House of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. And you who fear him, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. This, I think, is a psalm that reflects upon the identity of our God. 
And in the first 11 verses of this psalm that we're looking at today, it, it frames two possible replies, two possible ways to think about how we answer that question. Who is God? What does he look like? What is his character? And one is the way of Israel, the way they answer the question, who is God? And one is the way of the nations, the world that surrounded them. For Israel, the identity of God was tied to a name. In particular, the name of the Lord, or Yahweh in Hebrew. You can see that in verse 1 here. The psalmist says, not to us, not to human beings, Lord, but to your name be the glory. And Israel attached a history to that name. It was not a name in the abstract. In fact, we, we know that the Israelite community recited this psalm, Psalm 114 and 115 here, at the end of Passover every year. These were some of the last psalms that were read. And Passover was a feast that celebrated the love and faithfulness described here in verse 1. Passover remembered all that God did in the exodus, all that God did in the wilderness, all that God did in bringing his people faithfully into the land. Right? There was a glory, there was a history to the name of the Lord. And I think part of the reason Israel had Passover and other festivals and feasts that rehearsed their history and the identity of who God was in that history is because of what we find in verse 2. Because they were surrounded by the nations of the earth that had their own ideas about God and what it meant to worship him. We could imagine a visitor during the time these psalms were written in the ancient world coming from Egypt or coming from Assyria or coming from Persia and making their way through Israel. And if they stopped long enough to notice the way the Israelites worshipped, they would find something conspicuous about that worship. Every other nation around them had gods you could see, gods you could touch. They had temples with idols that were dressed up. You would bring food to your god. You even washed your god if you were a priest on a daily basis. And so with, with that kind of background, the nations of the earth, when, when faced with the Israelites, would ask this question. Where is your God? We can't see him. What does he look like? How would you answer that question? Where is your God? Maybe we sense our world today asking that in, in a different way way in its own sort of skepticism. I don't see what it is you worship. The way the psalmist answers that question comes in verse 3. The psalm says, our God lives in heaven and he does or literally he makes whatever he pleases of the world. As commentator Derek Kidner paraphrases, 
The psalmist is saying, our God is a God too great to be tied down to one image. Even to be tied down to just the earth itself. Right, how do you contain that the full glory of, of a transcendent and living God who is dynamic in, in the sense that he's always creating, not that he's changing himself? How do you, how do you contain that transcendence in a, in a static image or statue? God is the maker, not that which is made. But despite the invitation the psalmist gives us to worship the God who made everything, who made the world according to his desires, it turns out that there's this deep human compulsion or tendency to make gods of our own. And instead to make God according to our desires. Right? We, we invert verse 3. And we see that played out in verses 4, 5, 6, and 7. We see God being remade. John Calvin famously has called the human mind a perpetual forge of idols. He says this about, about our mindset. He says, stuffed as it is with presumptuous rashness, our mind dares to imagine a God suited to its own capacity. It substitutes vanity and an empty phantom in the place of God, with a capital G. Right? We imagine gods suited to our own capacity. We make idols to worship instead of worshiping the God of heaven. And, and to most of us in, in 21st century Western post-modernity, the idea of worshiping a, a physical idol is, is something we might think foolish or uh, you know, not, not a particular, uh, particularly strong temptation. But I think we can relate to what verse 4 highlights as a, a pair of reasons why uh, idolatry in a, in a deeper or more deceptive way is so attractive. The first I like to call the allure of shiny things. We see here it says that the idols that the ancients made were made from silver and gold. Right? We're, we're wired to respond to grandeur, to beauty. Right? We're, we're drawn to the tangible and the concrete and the material. And that's part of how God has made us. Right? We're, we're meant to be creatures of, of flesh and bone and of this world. And that's good. It's a good impulse until that impulse tempts us to worship what God has created instead of worshiping God as our creator. So we, we can sense why it is that the, the ancients, the pagan world, made their idols from silver and gold. Right? Why they built temples that were, were massive in size to dwarf everything else around them. Because there's an impressiveness about that. You could go today and, and visit the, the ancient courtyards of, of places like uh, oh, the, the, the temple in, in southern Egypt. 
the ancient temple ruins there. You could go to Angkor Wat in Cambodia. And you can, you can feel the allure that these massive images have over the human imagination. Right? They, they speak of power and a kind of, of human glory. But the second thing that we notice in verse 4, and I think the deeper quality of what makes idolatry so seductive, is that it provides us the chance to make the objects that we worship. Right? It says... These idols are made by human hands. And it gives us the chance almost to reenact Genesis 2 in reverse. Remember back in Genesis 2, we have God taking the things of the earth, the dust of the earth, and he makes us, he makes our form and breathes life into us. Idol worship gives us the chance to take the things of the earth and make God, make an image of God that looks like our image. To make a God with a mouth and eyes and ears and a nose and hands. Right? We, we make a God that's at our disposal. Now I know we could talk about the, the way that we make sort of abstract ideas idols. We worship money, we worship power, we worship comfort. But very few of us sort of bow down to the altar of those things directly. And I think for us as Christians, what we need to be more conscious of is the way these idols come into our worship of God himself. The temptation we have to slowly remake the image of God to look more like we do. How is it that I take God and make him into someone who will take my side of an issue? How is it that I will take God and recast him into a God who will vote like me or have the same skin color as me or who will defend whatever strain of self-righteousness I prize most? Where have I taken God's image and distorted it to make myself more comfortable? To give myself license to do as I wish? Theologian and Old Testament scholar Christopher Wright expresses his concern that by distorting the image of the God we worship, the result is that we, we end up with what he calls denominational tribalism where we have all these little gods we have created and that we've pitted against one another rather than worshiping the one true God. And the, the result, even if we can't see our own hypocrisy, the world around us sees it. Right? And, and like in verse 2 of this psalm, they ask, well, where is your God? Right? You have all of these gods you seem to be worshiping. No matter how hard we try, if the God we worship looks like us, if it looks like we've made God to our standard, then there will be no glory in that God. There will be no life coming from that image of God. There will be no devotion to it. As verses 5, 6, and 7 illustrate, when we worship gods that look like us, 
they prove impotent and lifeless. And verse 8 warns us that if we worship God in this way, then the same fate of those idols awaits us as well. Look at verse 8. It says, those who make them, those who make idols, will be like them. And so will all who trust in them. Scripture says that the fate of every idol comes back upon the one who makes it. The, the hope, the great promise we're, we're given, the false promise we're given in idolatry is that we get to, to make new gods that, that we can worship that suit our desires. But the reality is that when we do that, we don't remake God. Actually, those little gods remake us. And verse 8 here says it remake us. They remake us into a, a lifeless shell of a person. Right? Like the idol, we have eyes, but we no longer have eyes to see reality with any clarity. We'll have ears, but we'll no longer be able to perceive truth with them. We'll have mouths, but have nothing worth saying with them to speak. Whatever appearances we, we keep up on the outside, verse 8 says, inside, if we worship an idol, a shell of a god, right? We become lifeless within. We become like the, the whitewashed tombs that Jesus speaks of in talking to the Pharisees. This idea of worshiping something, an idol of stone, and becoming like it reminded me of a, a section in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And you'll remember how young Edmund in that book is, is tempted to worship or attempted to give his loyalty to the white witch. And part of that temptation is the promise of Turkish delight. <laughs> but but a, a deeper part of that promise is Edmund's own hope that he'll become king, right? That he'll be made ruler over the kingdom of Narnia. Yet when he arrives in the witch's castle, you'll remember there's a time where he comes into a particular room and sees a statue of stone, a, a lion that's been turned into a stone statue. And he sees that it resembles Aslan, right, the rightful king of Narnia. And he, mistaking it to be Aslan, gloats for a minute. He rejoices over the fact that the true king of Narnia has been turned into stone, and, and now this might make space for him to rule the kingdom. It's not, in fact, Aslan. It's different. It's a different creature. But then he moves on from that room, and he discovers that there are yet more statues, more stone persons made from countless creatures and citizens of Narnia. And slowly Edmund begins to realize that the white witch that he's thrown his lot in with might not be so glorious after all. And he realizes that she doesn't share her power with those she befriends. Instead, she turns her friends, quote-unquote, into stone. And Edmund has to wonder if he is the next statue in her courtyard. He begins to wonder if his loyalty, if his worship, so to speak, has been misplaced. 
we will become like the things we trust in. Paul writes in his letter to the Romans that when we offer our worship to anything other than the living God, the result is that our human identity gets compromised in all sorts of ways. And when we begin to worship in an image that is a false one, he says we, we have desires that arise within us that, that are uh, destructive. They unravel us. He speaks about the greed that overtakes us in idolatry. He speaks about the poisoning of human relationships with envy and jealousy. Romans is clear that eventually idol worship leads both physical and spiritual death to overtake us. And the only way for us to to recover from the curse of our own temptation, our own tendency to worship idols, is to stop making a God on our own terms. Stop making an image for ourselves. And instead, to know the one who has made all things. To ask him to reveal himself to us. Look at verses 9 10 and 11. It says, All you Israelites, trust in the Lord. And that's a a proper name. Yahweh. He is their help and shield. House of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. You who fear him, trust in the Lord. He is their help shield. The Israelites don't have an idol to look upon, but they do have a name to trust in. We said at the beginning of this message, they have the name of the Lord, and that sets him apart from every other God. The name Yahweh, right? The I Am. The Lord, And it, it bears repeating here three times in verses 9, 10, and 11. Right? First Israel, then, then the priesthood, the house of Aaron, then every worshiper of God is exhorted. Right? Do not make your own gods. Do not worship an image that is empty, but trust in the Lord who is your help and your shield. Back in the book of Exodus, you'll remember in chapter 3, the first time Moses sort of meets with the the living presence of God in Midian, there in the wilderness. And he asks of God, who are you? What's your name? To which God replies, I am who I am. He says, say to the Israelites back in Egypt, I am has sent you. Say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is the the name that becomes the, the Lord, right? Yahweh, the I Am. And this title, I think, is God's insistence that we must know him to name him. We must must be in relationship with him. We must know the history of his faithfulness to his people to know accurately who he is. 
He is the great I am. He's the God who creates. He's the God who acts. He's the God who saves and redeems and rescues a people. He's not a God we can make with human hands. He's the God who is before all things and has made everything with his hands. So if we're to know him, then then we must ask him. We must come to him and say, God, reveal yourself to me. Allow him to be the creator and director of our worship. So this morning we are coming to the table of the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice that we say, we affix the title Lord to a human being who has made himself visible to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And he invites us to come to his table and to be in relationship with him and to worship him. I'm going to read these verses from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It says, on the night he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and he gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this to remember me. And in the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this to remember me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. Jesus is saying that this is who I am. This is the identity of the living God made known to us. His faithful love, his power to redeem, his power to save. This is what it means to be in relationship with God and to be at his table. So if you desire to know God, if you desire for him to reveal himself to you, then I invite you to come to the table and to receive these gifts of God for us, his people.